it's really great to be able to share God's Word with you this morning. And just to kind of set the scene of what we'd like to do for this next sort of uh, period of time, and it's going to be at least six months, I would think. Uh, we finished off our study of Colossians at the end of last term, and I've been thinking and praying and, and asking God what the next thing is for us as a church. And uh, I felt, as we've been praying, uh, Helen and I, and speaking to our leadership team, We'd like to focus in a little bit in the next six months around discipleship. What does it mean to be a Christian? What does it mean to be someone that follows Jesus? Uh, we are saved by God's grace, and that's a powerful and a wonderful thing that transforms our lives. But then what does it mean to live as a Christian? And perhaps one of the books that uh, illustrates this the most profoundly is Paul's letter to the Philippians. It's a short book of four, four chapters. And in it, he addresses a number of things, but he's trying to encourage these, this, this church in their discipleship and what it means to live the Christian life. And some of the themes that he explores in this book are joy. How can we live joyfully? How can we live through difficult things with joy in our lives? And then he also speaks about things like fellowship. He uses the word over and over in the book koinonia, which is the Greek word for fellowship and friendship. And so uh, the Greeks had an understanding of friendship that was perhaps a little bit different from ours, and we're going to explore that a little bit, what, what friendship looks like for Paul, friendship with God and friendship with each other. How do we work that out? How do we do that in a joyful way and live joyfully, live in a joyful way that the future is not frightening, but the future is secure because of the fact that we're in Jesus, and we are in Jesus, and we can love each other, all right? So these are the kind of things that Paul, uh, doesn't our logo look great? It does, eh? It's so cool. <laughs> anyway, thank you, Magali, once again. So um, I thought, I, since we've just been to Greece on holiday, and I want to recommend if you love seafood, and you love salads, and you love sunshine, get to Greece, all right? And go with some Greek friends. We went with Murray and Elena. It was absolutely wonderful. And uh, we lay on the beach and did nothing and read a little bit and enjoyed ourselves, Helen and I, without our boys. Not that we don't love our boys. We do love them. But they were doing their own thing this year, which was also cool. And so we had some time together. And uh, I would recommend taking some time to go and lie on the beach if you like the beach. But uh, why I say that is because if you can see from the map behind me, we were, we were in Thessalonica, just outside Thessalonica, which if you know the uh, Mediterranean, the Aegean Sea, runs between uh, uh, Greece on the one side and Turkey on the other. And you can see Philippi. We were only a couple of hours from Philippi, but didn't get to Philippi. It's the northeastern part of Greece, in the ancient world, that whole, that whole region was Macedonia, all right? So Macedonia is still there, and further north is the old U Yugoslavia, uh, and then we've got Greece running down all the way to Crete, Crete at the bottom. So this is where Paul, um, we're going to look at the Philippian letter that he writes to the church in Philippi. And just some background, um, Paul arrived about 50 years after the death of Jesus, um, and it was already an old city by the time Paul arrived there in AD 49. And we're going to look at Acts 16 in a short while, which describes the birth of the Philippian church. But the origins of this um, city go back to four centuries before Christ, when it was occupied by the Thracians. The Thracians were people that predated the Romans, all right? And so in uh, about 356 BC, there was a guy called Philip, who was the father of Alexander the Great. Anyone remember your history? Alexander the Great, well, his father was a guy called Philip, and he took over the city, 
and he uh, named it after himself, as people like to do. He named it after himself, and he established a military stronghold there because there were gold reserves in the hills, uh, and he was benefiting from those gold reserves, and so he built the city. And so this is a reconstruction from the foundations of the city that you can still go and see. This is what archaeologists have done and reconstructed what the city of Philippi would have looked like. It's quite an, quite an amazing um, place. And if you look online, you'll find ruins in particular of the amphitheater there that you can see. And I hope to go and see it one day. So it was also very important in the ancient world because it was part of the, the land route through Asia. And in 168 before Christ, it became part of the Roman Empire. The Romans and the Persians were fighting each other, and the Romans won, and they divided this whole, session, this whole um, region of Macedonia into four districts, and the most important was Philippi. And it's, and it's famous also for a particular event. Uh, for those of you that studied Shakespeare, remember Julius Caesar was murdered by Brutus and Cassius. Do you remember that? Well, that, in fact, uh, happened in uh, uh, AD 42, and... After this event, after Julius Caesar was assassinated, Octavian and Mark Antony actually took on Brutus and Cassius in a famous battle at Philippi and defeated them there. And then Octavian renamed himself Augustus as the emperor, and he rebuilt the city of Rome. And he placed a whole lot of soldiers there, and it became an enclave that was loyal to Rome and was a military outpost. And so it was kind of like a, a, a small Rome, and it was given the highest sort of Roman honor that could be given to an ancient city, and in, in that it was exempt from certain taxes. Uh, you could buy property there, and uh, it maintained its own law and order and civil lawsuits, etc. And so it was really a privileged place to live in the, in the, olden, um, in the ancient world. It had this privileged place in the Roman Empire. And so when Paul arrived there in AD 49, it was an urban center. Uh, it, was, it was a thriving community. And there were Romans and Greeks there who spoke predominantly Greek, although Latin was the official language. So that's the kind of background of, this, of Philippi as a place in its geography. And so if you've got your Bibles with me, please turn to Acts 16, because we're now going to just do a little brief background in terms of the birth of the church. How did the church start in Philippi? Well, Acts 16 gives us very, very clear indication of how the church started in Philippi. And so Paul had a number of missionary journeys. Oh, I see you there, Rachel. We're going to pray for you afterwards. Is that okay? Okay, so I didn't, uh, we were going to pray for you earlier, but I didn't see you. All right, so you're off to Canada, is that right? Okay, cool. So we'll pray for you after the meeting. All right, so um, Paul had a number of missionary journeys, three, okay? And on his second missionary journey through, the, uh, through Asia, he, um, th this church was planted in Philippi. And if you know the story in Acts 16 in verse 9, Paul has this, this vision, of a man from Macedonia saying, come over to help us. And if you know, if you read just the verses before that, you'll see that it says the Holy Spirit constrained him that he couldn't just go where he wanted to go. And so there's this sense that the Holy Spirit is constraining Paul. He prays and he has this vision at night and he sees this man, this Macedonian man saying, come over to help us. And on that basis, he responds to the Holy Spirit and he goes to Philippi. 
And that starts his kind of his evangelization of Europe as he comes from Syria and Turkey on the east towards the west, towards Europe. He goes to Philippi and Thessalonica, and he goes west and starts to evangelize into Europe. And so he stays there several days. We know that from verse 12, if you look at um, chapter 16. And the, the religious life, in the, as you can imagine, in, in, in the context, it was synchronistic. And so there were people that worshipped all sorts of gods. They also worshipped the emperor. So that was one of the marks of, of Roman uh, rule, is that the emperors were seen as divine, and you had to worship the emperor. You could worship all the gods as well, but you needed to worship the emperor. And so that was part of, of Roman rule. And also there were the worship, we know from archaeology, that they worshipped some of the Egyptian gods as well, Isis and Seraphis, and many other deities. So there was this synchronistic kind of thing that was happening in the context that Paul finds himself. And so if you read verse 13... It says that in the Sabbath, Paul, on the Sabbath, Paul goes outside of the city looking for a river. Uh, we're not quite sure why he did that, but we can only imagine this. Normally, uh, to, to have a synagogue which w would function in a city, you needed 10 adult Jewish men to form a synagogue. So people think that there wasn't yet that, con that uh, um, consensus. And so the Jews went outside of the city, and they went to a river, why? Because they, they would wash themselves ritually, and it was part of the Jewish tradition to wash in a certain way, and so they needed water. And so for that reason, people think that Paul went outside of the city, and there, it's probably the, the, the river was called the Gankiches River, and it's, he, he, um, he met a lady there called Lydia. And if you read verse 12 of verse 16, you'll see about Lydia. And she was a businesswoman, and she dealt in purple cloth, uh, purple was the color that was the most sought after in the ancient uh, culture, and so it was very good living to have. And she was a, a proselyte to, Ju to Judaism. She had, she had converted to Judaism. She's got a Gentile name. And so she moves to Philippi, and she listens to Paul, and the Lord opens her heart to what Paul is saying. And it says in verse 14 of, of Acts 16 that her whole household is saved and baptized. And we, we, we can read that in verse 15. And so that really was the birth of the Philippian church, this businesswoman who gets saved, and out of that salvation, her whole household gets saved, and Paul has immediately the, the seeds of a church that he begins to work with in Philippi. And then if you read uh, verse 16, uh, chapter 16, there's also this lengthy kind of um, story, uh, just kind of g giving some more of the context of, of what happened uh, in the, uh, the church as it's being birthed, that Paul, um, Luke rather, writes about Paul's encounter with the slave girl. And she, it says she was demonized and that she could tell the future by this demonic kind of um, uh, spirit that enabled her to tell the future. And so she was a slave, and out of, out of this relationship, her masters were making lots of money. And so Paul, he kind of rebukes the spirit in this woman, and it leaves her, and as it leaves her, she can no longer tell the future, all right? And so her masters are really irritated with Paul, and they're really angry. And so they get him arrested and thrown in jail, and they go to the authorities and say, remember, this is, this is a, a little Rome, so it's self-governing. It's got all its own civil laws. And they, um, they take them, Paul and Silas, before the authorities and say, they are teaching and forcing people to follow customs that are unlawful according to our law. 
And on that basis, Saul and, and uh, Paul and Silas are thrown in jail. They are stripped. They are beaten. They are flogged. Acts 16, you can read that in verse 20 to 24. And then there's this amazing story, which I always find delightful, is that it says after midnight, after they've been flogged and uh, they've been thrown in jail, it says Paul and Silas are singing hymns and worshiping the Lord, and all the prisoners can hear them. Isn't that incredible? I don't know about you, but if I'd been severely flogged and beaten, I'm not sure that I would want to be singing. <laughs> Probably be complaining and saying, this is really tough. This is sore. My back is sore. It says, Paul and Silas were worshiping. They're in the stocks. Their hands and feet are in chains, and they are worshiping, and all the prisoners can hear them. And it says, around midnight, there's an earthquake. The doors fly open, and they don't flee. Paul and Silas don't flee, but they stay, and they share the gospel with the jailer who's afraid for his life. And it says again, both he, the jailer, and his entire family are saved. Isn't that cool? I wish I was able to uh, be that kind of evangelist, right? Where people, the whole household gets saved. Paul had an amazing, amazing courage and gift to share the gospel. And you can read that in verse 25 to verse 34 of Acts 16. And so, Paul then, because he knows the context... He's a Roman citizen, and so the, he uses the fact that he's a Roman citizen, and he appeals to the magistrate, and he says, hey, you, what you guys have done is illegal. I'm a Roman citizen. The magistrate gets a big uh, fright, and he releases them, and they go about their, their missionary journey. They go back to Lydia's house. Obviously, she, as a business person, she had a home, and she hosted them, and she used her wealth to, to help them, and then it says after that, they leave, and they head towards Thessalonica. All right, so that really is the kind of birth of this Philippian church. It's dramatic, and there's a couple of events that um, Luke records in Acts that show us exactly how dramatic it was. And we're not sure how long Paul did stay at Philippi, but it's clear that he developed a deep love for these, peoples, uh, these people, and we read that in the first chapter of Philippians. And we have these amazing events that um, uh, Luke unpacks for us in the book of Acts. So now some years later, Paul writes back to the Philippian church. And we know he's in prison, and there are three possibilities. He was in jail four times, Paul. He was in jail in, in Jerusalem, in Caesarea, in Rome. And um, he, he, scholars have debated, well, where did he write this letter from? Did he write it from Caesarea? Did he write it from Ephesus? Did he write it from Rome. And most people agree that he probably wrote it towards the end of his life from Rome. So towards the end of his life, he writes back to this, this um, church that he loves. And he, when he writes to them, he has three main things in mind. All right? Three main things. He, he writes to encourage unity. And again, as we know from our study of Colossians, there was, there was, there was a false teachers that came into the Colossian church. And here in the Philippian church, there seems to be a little bit of disunity in the church as well. And there's rivalry. And so he writes to address that. It's a particularly joyful letter that Philippians, of all his letters, it's perhaps the most joyful. It's the most based around friendship. But we're going to look at that um, as we go forward. But he writes for primarily to encourage unity. He doesn't want there to be disunity in the church, so he writes to address that. And secondly, as I've mentioned already, there were false teachers that had come in. And so he, he, he writes to address what the true gospel is and to encourage people in the true gospel. And thirdly, he had received a gift from these guys. And so he's writing back to say thank you. It's good to be 
thankful when God blesses you. And so Paul writes back to the Philippian church to say thank you for this gift that he's received. And that's really the context of why he writes. And we're going to explore some of those themes over the next six, six months. Fellowship, joy, relationship, unity, true Christian living. We're going to explore all of those things as we go through the, first, the, the, the four chapters of this book. But let's just look this morning at this amazing greeting, all right? And it's a particularly Christian way of greeting people that Paul uses here. It is particularly Christian, and we're going to learn some things this morning. We're going to learn three things about Paul, the kind of man that he was, and we're going to look at three things in how he viewed other people, all right? How he viewed the Christians. Three things about himself, and three things about the church that he's writing to, and these are all encapsulated in this very simple greeting that he gives and this prayer that he gives in the first couple of verses. What can we learn, first of all, about Paul? Well, here he greets them and he says, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons, grace to you, peace from our God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. I love Paul's greetings. I've got into a habit. I'm not trying to be religious, but when I write emails and stuff now to people, I normally say, grace and peace. Or I say, love and courage. Why? Because that's what we most need. We need grace in our lives. We need God's peace. We need love. We need courage to live this life. So let's encourage each other. I'm not saying we get all religious and go, oh, brother, brother, grace and peace, brother. I'm not, I don't mean it like that. I mean it like in a, in a heart way. That is, it's what we wish for other people more than anything else. We wish God's grace in their lives. We, 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 we wish God's courage in their hearts. We wish them to, to live bravely, to live courageously for the kingdom. If you're visiting, uh, this is the last time I will apologize, but I do get a bit loud, all right? And it's not that I don't like people. It's just that I love God's word, and sometimes I get a bit loud, all right? Okay, so three things that we can see about Paul in this greeting. First, we see his humility. You know, he wasn't a brilliant scholar. In other parts of the Bible, we, we, we know that he describes himself as a Jew of Jews. He was an educated, very bright man. He was a Roman citizen. He was an apostle to these, the, these churches. He was brilliant uh, and, and thoughtful and, and, and a man of great intelligence. How does he start his letter he starts simply by saying, a servant. Paul and Philippi, uh, Paul, Paul and Silas, uh, uh, Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus. Of all the ways he could have described himself, the thing he wants to say more, more, more than all, uh, it's I'm here to serve you. I find it fascinating over the summer, we have so many events, Christian events, and I'm not knocking anyone's Christian events over the summer, but I do think that there's something of a celebrity culture in Christianity, celebrity worship leaders, celebrity preachers, and it can kind of begin to seep into the way that we see people and the way that we see our role. What does Paul say? Paul, apostle conference speaker, worship leader extraordinary. No, he just says, Paul's simply a servant. I'm here to love you. I'm here to serve. We could do well to learn from Paul as we live as Christians in the 21st century. Paul a servant. That's the first thing. He is a, a humble man. Secondly, we see he, his impartiality. He doesn't take favorites. Why do I say that? Because he writes and he says, 
Paul to all the saints with the overseers and the deacons. And if you read the New Testament, the most common word used to describe Christians is saints. All right? Saints. We are all saints. The first believers that believed in Jesus were called followers of the way, the new way of Christ Jesus. And then they were called Christians. But when Paul writes, he often refers to brothers and sisters or saints. And here he writes to all of the saints in this church. He reminds them, first of all, that they are saints before they are anything else. He reminds them, secondly, that they are all in Christ Jesus. And we're going to look at that as well. And the third thing that he says, he recognizes their geography, right? So these are the three things we're going to explore about how Paul sees this church. He says they are all saints. And when he writes to this church, he's including the slaves, He's including the children. He's including everyone. And he doesn't address just the leaders. He says to all the saints, everyone is equally important. We are all saints under the cross. And it, saint really comes from a Greek word, hagios, which just means set apart. It means called out of, set apart. And so he addresses us as believers, all of us, as those that are set apart or called out. It's a good question to ask what we are set apart from and what we are called out from if we are called to be saints. And what this really alludes to, this phrase of being saints, is that um, in the Bible, the name of God has to do with holiness. And when God describes himself in the Bible and says, this is my name, he's, in that phrase, he's talking about everything that makes him who he is constitutes his character. It's the summary of every good attribute about God is summarized in his name, in his holy name. That's how the Bible speaks about God. And, and it uses that description more than any other way. And so what really Paul is saying here, the idea is, is that all of us who are Christians have been given the nature of the, the, the most holy God who's called out, who's separate, who's different from every, everybody else. Every, uh, no other God is like him. And we too have the highest honor in our lives as being called hagios, those that are called out saints. We are called out and separated from the rest of the world and we live differently. We live in according to a completely different way of understanding because the most high God who rules over all has given us his nature and has given us his character and we are in him, in Christ. Christ. And because we are in Christ, we are called out and we are to live in a different way. That's the idea. And so Paul, he identifies Christians primarily not as Philippians living in a privileged city, not as Greek-speaking um, people or Roman citizens, privileged people living in a community. Primarily, he, he identifies what God has done in their lives, and he identifies them according to the grace of God and what the grace of God has done in their lives. He says, you are first and foremost saints. I am first and foremost a child of God, a saint, a called out one, and so are you. That's my first identity. The second identity that I have is that I am male, that I was born in Cape Town. I was born in South Africa. That is not my primary identity. That is my secondary identity. My nationality, my sex, my gender is secondary to the fact that I am a saint, first and foremost, because I've placed my trust in Jesus. And so are you. We are all saints first, and geography and nationality second. We are saints first. That's what Paul is saying to these Philippians. 
And let that encourage you. That's why I say, I'm not, I don't mind where you come from. God doesn't mind where you come from. Why? Because he sees you primarily as his child. First, foremost, highest thing. He saved you. He's called you out. And all those good things that you enjoy about where you were born and where you come from, those are good things. But the primary thing that God has done for you is that he's given you his nature. You are in Christ, first and foremost. You are his son. You are his daughter. That should excite you and thrill you. All right. That's the first thing. He says, and coming out of that, I want to just uh, draw your attention to the fact that what Paul is doing here, writing this letter to the Philippians, this becomes Scripture. Isn't that right? So all these letters are now Scripture. So I want to ask you this question. It's a question worth asking. To whom, then, are the Scriptures given? The Bible. To whom are the Scriptures given? Well, if you, if you know anything of church history, you can see that there have been different answers to that over church history. Some people have said, oh no, the Scriptures are given to the preachers, to the clergy. Now, it's their primary responsibility to know the Scriptures, to unpack the Scriptures so they can teach. Well, there's some truth in that. Other people have said, oh no, the Scriptures are given for the scholars, that the scholars can really you know, study the Greek and the Hebrew and, and really get to grips with what the Bible says and, and help us to understand it, and there's truth in that as well. <laughs> but it's not what Paul says. Paul says here, what does he say? He says, To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and the deacons. So in the very ba basis of the church is the fact that the Scripture is given to every single believer. It's given to you. It's given to you to love, to get to know, to read for yourself, to ask God to help you understand for your own life from His Scripture. It's given to you, to all of the saints in Christ Jesus. The Scripture is given as an amazing gift. Now it is true that Paul does say that it's also the elders and the deacons. So there's no doubt that there are some that are particularly gifted to understand and to unpack it and so that we can understand together. I'm not, knocking, not saying that that's not true. But primarily, the Scripture is given as a gift to every believer. I want to encourage you this year as we, as we go forward together on this marathon that Helen spoke of, that you love God's Word with all of your heart for yourself. I can't get you to read the Bible. I can only encourage you, <laughs> I can say, man, it's good for you. Read it daily, in the car, on the train, listen on your podcast, whatever you do. But get it into your heart. Why? Because it's life to you. I can help once a week, whoever preaches can help once a week to say something of what the Scripture is saying. But there's a whole journey for you to enjoy by yourself with the Lord and the Holy Spirit, getting to know His Word, getting to know Jesus. That is life to you. Thank you. I can't do that for you. I can encourage you. I can say, come on. We can encourage each other. We can link arms, but only you can do it for yourself. I want to encourage you this year. Make God's word vital and living in your own life, however you do it. Why? Because it's life to you. And so, here we have this word overseers, which means biskopos, means bishops. The original church didn't distinguish between bishops and priests. No, all of us are saints. All of us are priests. Bishops are simply people in the local church that oversee some practical things. Biscopoc, a deacon, called those kind of functional things. 
over the years, the church has made all these hierarchies. Isn't that true? So we were in this amazing place in Greece called Meteora, which if you can get there, is really cool. You probably saw it in one of the James Bond movies. It's like these basalt rocks that are hundreds of meters high, and they go straight up in these big vertical things. And right on top, the Greek Orthodox guys over the centuries built monasteries to escape the Turks. And so literally you have to go up these little tiny pathways to get to the top, and now they're much bigger staircases. But I was amazed that people would chip away at the rock and live in caves and as hermits to escape uh, certain people and to preserve the gospel for themselves and lived on top of these mountains. And whenever you, when you go into those things, you can see all these people that have been called saints over the years. And what does it mean? It means that for, for the, that portion of the church, they did something extraordinary that they would be called a saint. All right? Jesus says, you're a saint. You don't have to do anything extraordinary. You are a saint. You are called that one. My grace is upon you. My life is in you. My heart is your heart. Your heart is my heart. We are one in the Spirit. You are saints, my son, my daughter. Come on. Saint Jack, who led the worship this morning with Saint Zach, who led the worship this morning. Paul is completely impartial. That's the second thing. He doesn't write to the leaders and ignore the people. He doesn't write to the people and ignore the leaders. No, we are all saints together before the cross. We're all priests. We're all on this journey together. So we see his humility. We see his impartiality. And we see his prayerfulness, thirdly. And in this little prayer, we can see something else about how he sees people. So we see that he sees all people as saints, and we're going to see something else about how he sees people in this prayer as well. And this prayer is grace to you and peace from God the Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I've already alluded to this, but I like to call these semi-prayers. I like to call them half-prayers because they're kind of a greeting, but they're a prayer at the same time. And really what these greetings do, what these little prayers do here, they encapsulate everything that Paul has in his heart for these friends of his. It's what he wants most for these friends, these believers. He wants God's grace for them. He wants God's undeserved help to be working in their lives on a daily basis. That's what he says, more than anything, and, and, and maybe that should be our prayers for each other. More than anything, I want to see God's grace working in your life. God's undeserved favor just blessing you. And when something wonderful happens in your life, my first reaction is, that's God's grace and blessing, and not, oh, why didn't that happen to me? What about me? I'm going to be left out. No, there's more than enough grace for you as well, for all of us. Why? Because he loves all of us equally. We are all saints of the Most High God. We are all his sons and daughters. Come on. He wants God's grace. He wants God's peace. What is God's peace? God's peace is that knowledge of the reconciliation that you have with him. And because you are reconciled with him and you have peace with him, you can have peace with everybody else. Don't have to fight. Only start fighting when our hearts grow hard. But if we know the grace of God and His peace, it keeps our hearts soft and we can get on with other people. <laughs> and what does Paul say? He knows how these blessings will come. They come from fellowship with the Father and fellowship with the Son. 
And so Paul puts God the Father and God the Son alongside each other just in the most amazing way. And he sees God equally in Jesus as in the Father. And so he mentions grace and peace. It's God's grace that leads us to his peace. And our experience of God's grace and peace comes to us as we are in fellowship with God the Father. And so this is the second thing, and I'm finishing with this, that Paul reminds these guys of in the way that he sees them. He sees them all as saints, but he says to them, they are also all in Christ. To all the saints that are in Christ. Man, that should delight your heart. Our position, objectively, is all of us that believe by faith are in Christ Jesus. That's our position. And because we are in Christ, we can continue in our lives living in the grace of God, free from fear, free from compulsion in every way because we are in Jesus. We can live peacefully. And so what, are, what does that mean to be in Christ? Well, here are some things for you to think about. In Christ, salvation has come for us, to us. Because we are in Christ, we are secure and have all that we need. Can you say you have all that you need? Because, oh, my friends, we really do have all that we need. We have all that we need for life and godliness. Truly, you and I have all that we need physically as well. We all have roofs over our head. We all have clothes on our back. We all have food every day. We are truly blessed in every way. We have all that we need. And you might not feel like that. You might say, well, I'm carrying some heavy financial burdens. But I want to still tell you that in the light of the whole of the world, we, all, in the, all of us in this room have more than enough. We have all that we need. Do you know there's this lovely phrase? It says, the peace of God guards your heart. Yeah? You know, the Scripture says more than that. The Scripture says, when you look at the original translation of, of that verse, it says, it's not like you just have one soldier guarding your heart. The peace of God is like one soldier. No, it says, actually, the peace of God is like a garrison of soldiers guarding your heart. I love that. It's not just one. No, there's a whole little army surrounding your heart that is the peace of God, that fights for peace on your behalf. Cheap as I am, frothing. That's what it says. There's a little garrison in your heart, guarding your heart, giving you peace. I love that. And so we have this peace, and we know that there's this glorious riches of Christ are given to you and I to meet our every need. Because we are in Christ, we have a whole new identity. We are new people. We have new feelings. We have a new mind. We have a new incentive to live a different life, and we have a new ability by the Holy Spirit to see that come to fruition. It is possible because we are in Christ. We have a whole new way of looking at life. We are completely secure that whatever comes across our path, His sovereign hand, His everlasting arms are underneath our lives and holding us and supporting us like a father holds a baby. That is the promise for you because you are in Christ. So to be in Christ means to possess full salvation. It means everything that is necessary, if your past, your present, your future eternal security, all has been secured for you because you are in Christ. And so I want to finish with this, and I can't preach this morning, but this verse, but we will preach this verse. Verse 6, I love this verse. I am sure, says Paul, 
I am sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion on the day of Jesus. Why can't Paul say that with absolute confidence over every single believer in Philippi? And why can we say it confidently over every single life here? That he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. You don't have to strive for it. All you have to do is listen to the Holy Spirit, be in Jesus, and he will complete the work that he has begun in you. Why can we say it confidently with joy, with passion, with enthusiasm? Why can we say it? Because we are in Christ. That's why you can say it. Am I a perfect person? I'm absolutely not perfect. Speak to my children and speak to my wife, and they will tell you all my foibles, all my insecurities, all the things that I don't do well. Does that faze me? Yes, I want to be a better husband, and I want to be a better dad, absolutely. But more than anything, I know this, that I've been saved by grace. I am in Christ. I am His Son. And that is enough, because He will complete the work. He will finish the work that He has started in my life. Whether I live another 20 years, 30 years, or whether I die tomorrow, He will complete the work that He has begun in me. And I want to say to you, as we start this marathon this year, He will complete the work that He has begun to, in you. You can be confident of it. He's going to complete it. It is assured in your heart. All you have to do is keep yourself connected to the head in fellowship with Christ and listening to the Holy Spirit, and He will complete the work in your life. He who began a good thing will complete it. Whatever you are going through, whether it's difficult or it's a sweet season in your life, God will complete the work that He's begun in you. Because you are in Him, in His Son, and He loves you, and He's called you. Amen? So what we're going to do, I need to get my breath back. I'm out of shape. I'm out of preaching shape. We're going to break bread together. We're going to start this year acknowledging that all that we need has been bought for us in Christ. Yeah? Forgiveness of sin, assurance of salvation, power to live by the Holy Spirit, all of it is in Christ. And so if you're visiting this morning, you're most welcome to join us, and please do. And we're going to break bread. There's some tables at the front. Is there one at the back? I can't see Yes, there's one at the back as well. Thank you. And we're just going to gather together as friends, and we're going to pray for each other, and we're going to thank God that He's done an amazing thing in the cross, that the cross has set us free from our past, our sins, our failures, and that we can live with joy, we can live confidently, because He who began a good work in us is going to complete it because of Christ Jesus. Amen? And we're going to pray, and pray that for each other. So I would encourage you, just gather around Pray blessing over the, the friends that you pr pray with, and let's not, uh, let's not exclude anyone this morning. Let me pray before we do that. Jesus, we want to thank you for uh, what you did on the, that final evening after supper where you took bread and you broke it and you said, this is my body broken for you. And in the same way, after supper, you took the cup and you said, this is my blood poured out for forgiveness of sins. Eat and drink in memory of me. And so, Lord, every time we eat and drink, we remember our need of you. We remember what you've done. We remember, Lord, that our, the promise to us is that our sins are as far as the east is from the west. So far have you removed our transgressions from us. We thank you for that. We recognize that's only possible because of the blood of Jesus. 
We thank you too that you're working in our lives. We thank you that you're transforming us to be more and more like your son. And Lord, when we eat and drink, we remember that we can't do this on our own. We need you every moment of every day. We need your grace. We need your favor. And Lord, we need each other. We can't do this without each other. We need the friends that you surround us with. We need the community of the church. And we recognize that now as we eat and drink. And we recognize too, Lord, that in the end of the day, you are going to complete the work that you've begun in us. Begun in us. Thank you for saving us. Thank you for the, your hand that is upon us. But Lord, we confidently can say that you are going to complete the work that you've begun because we are in Christ Jesus. And you are determined to make us more like your son. And we rejoice in that this morning. And so help us now, Lord, as we pray for each other, that we would be those that lift up each other's arms and encourage each other. Thank you for this year that lies ahead. Thank you for the joys that this year will have. Help us through the pain of what this year might have for some of us. But Lord, in all things, your sovereign hand is under us, holding us as a father holds a child, and we rejoice in your goodness of our lives. And so we eat and drink with grateful hearts. Everyone says, Amen. Amen.